Welcome to another episode of the I Am Podcast. I'm Johnny Wilkinson and I really appreciate you being here with me today. I've got a very special offer from our podcast partner that I don't think you're going to want to miss. As you know by now at I Am, we're passionate about exploring performance and potential. We often look at this through the body, how the food we consume affects us. And this is why we've partnered with Vivo Life, who have devoted themselves to understanding how our nutrition plays a significant role in our growth, both physically and mentally. Their products are formulated by nutritionists and are 100% natural, making them the perfect choice for anyone looking to take their well-being to the next level. A big favourite at the Iron Podcast is their Perform Plant Protein, especially in cacao flavour, and their plant-based Omega-3 made from high-potency algae oil. Whichever you choose, you'll quickly understand why Vivo Life products are award-winning when you try them out. Plus, their products are delivered straight to your doorstep via carbon-neutral delivery. Vivo Life really embodies the spirit of our podcast, and we're really keen for you guys to try the products yourselves. So they agreed to run their biggest ever discount exclusively for I Am listeners. The code is I Am Podcast, all in capital letters, which will give new customers 40% off their first order and a further 15% off when they subscribe. The offer ends soon, so don't miss out. Check out their full range of products at www.vivolife.co.uk to discover how they can help you unlock your full potential. big hi to everyone from the I Am podcast and thanks for tuning in to this exploration of peace, performance and potential. This week's main guest interview is with none other than Fern Cotton and I reckon it covers all three of these topics in a really cool way and as ever Fern is open, funny and unflinchingly honest about her world and herself and everything else too and it makes for a brilliant episode in my opinion. And in the chat we hear about Fern's evolutionary journey from avid teenage tv star to where she is now at the head of her happy place platform which through all kinds of services and events is making a big difference for people in their health and well-being and their life experience it's a really inspiring transformation involving a roller coaster of emotions and challenges all underpinned by a zest for life that i think has resonated and continues to resonate with loads and loads of people Thanks so much to Fern for this opportunity to delve into her life, find out about her experience and thanks to her for sharing so many of her stories so frankly, so honestly and I think allowing us to see her vulnerability too. It's a really, really powerful episode. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you take something from it. I'd love to hear what it is that you do take from it if that's the case. So keep us posted with your feedback. Can't wait to move forward into the next episodes so much more to come in this season take care wishing you really really well my name is johnny wilkinson this is the i am podcast with fern cotton fern cotton thank you very much for joining me it's a real pleasure i'm super excited about the chat to come but i'd like to know above everything how are you today i'm good i I think like most people um I've got this sort of weird, it's not even a lurgy, but I just feel run down and it that, it won't go. It's like not shifting. I'm on about week three and I'm able to completely function and work, but I just don't feel like my usual 100% like ready to go for it sort of state. So that's that's been a bit annoying. But bar that, I have no complaints. I am well bar that and I'm doing lots of 
creative projects that are really firing me up and I've enjoyed sort of hibernating a little bit with all the cold weather. So yeah, I'm doing well. How are you? Nice. Yeah, I'm good. Do you know, I have the similar thing going on. I've, I do, I'm doing some real throat clearing way more than I usually do. I can tell because when I'm in the middle of speaking, I suddenly realise maybe that's the fourth or fifth time and my mind starts to sort of drift towards what they must be thinking is going on at my end or whether it's unpleasant for them to be hearing this. <laughs> if I, oh, so I will worst. try and avoid that. I will try and avoid that for you. So I'm, I'm, you mentioned about all the creative stuff and one of the big things that I've been involved with with yourself already is your happy place. I was going to say just podcast, but I think it's a lot bigger than that because it's something that's going on the road this year and everything. So how's that all going and, and why why did you start that up? Um because it's obviously a, a, a big, a bit of an inspiration for me as well. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, um, we've got a lot going on at the moment, which feels like an absolute privilege because I very much see Happy Place as my like second go at a career because the first phase of my career was lengthy, but quite rocky at times. And there was definitely a point where I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I'm I'm kind of not really doing what I used to do. This new phase of my career feels m- much, much, much more fulfilling, super creative, and I feel more in control. And I am, I do have the tendency to be a bit of a control freak. So I, I like the element of control that I've got that I definitely didn't have previously. So at the moment, we've got, the podcast is always sort of the backbone of Happy Place. So ensuring that we have really gorgeous conversations with a mixed bag of people who have had varying life experiences. That's that's always going to be important. That's all year round. And then we have our Happy Place Festival, which you're going to be at this summer, which I'm yes. so grateful for. Um, and that is just the most beautiful, well, two dates, two weekends in our calendar where we just bring together all of our lovely followers who have been either listening to the podcast or following us on Instagram or taking part in our other Happy Place projects. And we get to do all the stuff we're talking about in real life. So there's yoga, meditation, creative workshops, you know, everything from sort of knitting to singing. Um, We have some really unusual sort of workouts and um, different ways to move the body. We have laughing yoga is one of my absolute <laughs> favourites every year. We have great talks. It's just a real celebration of everything that we talk about at Happy Place. So that is a, a big project all year round for us to sort of manage, but one that we absolutely love. And then we have a, a book imprint. So we're publishing books, which is joyful because I'm a bookworm, as well as my own books. We're publishing other authors who write beautiful books that are sort of helpful and we're 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 sort of tinkling with some sort of I guess creative videos and sort of video content so I'm going to start doing some more stuff on YouTube but also we've got our first kids tv commission on Sky this spring called My Friend Misty and it's a really beautiful kids show that really delves into emotions and and feelings and challenges throughout the day and we've got our app, our app that we launched last year, which is a, a well-being app to sort of, you know, round up what it is as meditation, yoga, breath work, yoga nidra, sleep stories, all sorts of practical sessions on there. So, yeah, we've got lots of things that we're, that we're working on constantly and it, it just all feels like a joy. I feel very, very lucky. 
The, I mean, <clears throat> one of the it's one of those throat clearings, by the way. It was one of them. Just <laughs> we're uh, going with it, Johnny. It's all good. <laughs> just <laughs> let's breeze past <laughs> it. The idea of the festival is really cool. I think also because bringing together so many like-minded people with similar interests, similar passions, similar, I guess, desires to open and to explore can be really impactful. I think just even just spending time, you don't even need to do anything, just being in and around that energy. I imagine you create a, a sort of environment there, almost like an incredible surrounding of of energy. And it must be quite cool to be in amongst oh, that. It's uh, the best. It's the best. I... This sounds maybe a bit gushy, but I cried on the last day of the the London one last year because it just felt so magical. And to see people walking out of, say, a, a sound bath or a sound healing class weeping or to see people coming out of talks, sort of hugging their mates, it, it felt like, oh, my God, we're doing something really positive here. It's really life-affirming. You realise there are lots of really good people out there because I think normally we're so bombarded with the bad news and all the terrible acts that, that people are sort of committing globally. And then when you're in the company of good-hearted people who really want to either you know, see life from a different angle, heal old wounds, whatever it might be, it feels very special. So it, there are certainly two weekends that I massively look forward to. I'm sort of interested, before The Happy Place was there, there was you. What was the driving force for you to bring about this Happy Place exploration? You, know, what, you, mentioned, and you mentioned about having that previous <coughs> stage to your career, if you like, that resonates with me, having a, a career and then being able to say, now, wow, this is so much more fulfilling. It actually feels like it's the same energy and passion underneath the first part that's underneath this second part, but it's just so much more almost pure and I'm in more direct contact with it, or at least a deeper source of it rather than the surface idea. But what was it that triggered that first desire to go and explore a happy place? Why a happy place? What does that mean for you as well? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I I feel the same. I've got the same amount of drive and energy, probably more actually with this new part of my career. But it's less of a roller coaster because previously, from the age of 15 when I started presenting up until really my mid-30s, a lot of it's ego-driven, obviously, because you're trying to get somewhere and obviously then you realise... <laughs> you ain't going nowhere. There is nowhere to go. But I was aiming for this ascent and, you know, to be Ant and Deck or whatever, you know, to get to the top, 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 thinking that would mean something to me and feel different. And you realise that it doesn't, you know, you just have all the same issues, you know, all this stuff, you know, you just feel the same. So I had that roller coaster to navigate constantly and being sacked from jobs without explanation, being, you know, very sort of disregarded sometimes in, you know, working on TV shows and then you'd see them on the TV and you weren't on it, but you you hadn't been officially sacked. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, that was a real hit to the ego quite often. That's happened numerous times. Um, so that I started to feel like I'm too sensitive for this. I'm certainly not built to be in the public eye. And I do think some people do navigate that far better than, than I'm able to. And it, and they are able to compartmentalize certain emotions or f 
find some logic around it. I, I don't deal with any of it well. And I found the the sort of press invasion um, excruciating. You know, that that nearly took me down. And it was really a culmination of all of this and, and some stuff that I was going through that was very challenging mentally, very challenging mentally um, in my sort of early 30s where I just thought, I can't do this anymore. This doesn't make sense. And... I I was really um, being battered by the press to the point where I just had to silence all of it. And I, I really closed myself off and I stayed at home as much as I could. I would leave for work, then come back and sort of hide. And I'd have to sort of be very jolly on the radio still, but actually felt horrendous when I was being all jolly. And that splitting felt very jarring. And I just thought, what am I doing here? Like, what, where, where, where am I going? Like, what am I aiming for? And why am I doing it? And I think I lost the incentive, sort of went. And the incentive was an incentive that was cultivated when I was 15. But I was in my 30s. So I had to go, oh, but I'm, I'm not 15 anymore. I, I, maybe I can change my goals and change everything, quite frankly. So now my goals with Happy Place aren't, like how how high up the ladder can I climb? It's, I keep searching for this feeling, which I get regularly, luckily, which is this pure excitement, like I am a kid again, where I'm creating something and it is so exciting. I'm like euphoric with this creative energy. I'm a much more creative person than I am logical or academic. Creativity is a huge part of who I am in in and outside of work. And I've managed to slowly build this world where I'm able to exercise that muscle most days and and try new things and hopefully help. You know, that's a big incentive for me. Hopefully I can help. I think I always wanted to, even in my old career, you know, even when I was doing a Radio 1 show, I hoped that people listening were smiling or maybe I'd made their day a bit better. But now I can do that in a a really exact way and in a, in a way that's just more thorough and thought through. So Happy Place was all accidental. You know, I didn't go, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. Let's do Happy Place. I kind of, I wrote a book called Happy, which was about feeling horrendous. Um, and that has just very, very slowly snowballed into this lovely little ecosystem we've created. You mentioned about wanting to help and how that was even at the base of your previous sort of journey or the first part of your journey into TV. And that's really interesting for me because I think that was similar to myself, you know, it, what seemed like such a selfish endeavor from my perspective, I'm not talking about yours in this way, but for mine, it, it did, it was such a self-centered endeavor in terms of, I want to be this, I want to be here. This is how I want to distinguish myself, how I want to be seeing all these things. But underneath it, there was always this thing about, I think there was this feeling of wanting to help. But when you're in that system of the media, it's funny how you sort of find yourself, or I did anyway, joining it a little bit. Surely at the basis of everything, everything started with the idea that, oh, if we do this, it'll mean this for me and for everyone else. But slowly and surely, it kind of gets more and more damaging. I'm just wanting for that journey of you as as a youngster in that space, did you find yourself kind of almost sometimes corrupted by it? Or even if it brought out those parts of you that weren't so secure, that wanted to actually, 
you know, gossip about other people or tell them this or, or do that thing? What's it like in that world? And do you feel that it, there is some genuine feeling underneath that these aren't just, you know, systems full of people that are rather nefarious and just desperate to, you know, to just wreak havoc on the world? Yeah, you know, maybe everyone is coming from a space of just wanting to be, as you said, happier and just wanting maybe those around them to be happier. But this is the form it takes. I think it's a real... I don't know. I think it's a real pool of people who have all got different agendas. I think some genuinely want to help in the media industry and they want to create entertainment that gives people escapism. But I do think there are a lot of people who are so lost in it. And I was definitely lost in it. You know, I, I was no saint. I started <laughs> at 15 as an innocent child from a just a regular working class background who was obsessed with popular culture and... TV shows that were on at the time, like Live and Kicking, you know, that was that was my world. Like most kids growing up in the 80s and 90s with very little stimulation elsewhere, TV was where it was at. So when I sort of realised, oh, I want to do that, I didn't know what it was. I didn't mind if I was a dancer on top of the pops or an, a, an actor. I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to do that and not live in the suburbs where everything was grey and school was boring. I thought there's got to be something else other than this, you know, and I had a perfectly lovely childhood. It wasn't sort of escaping any trauma. I just thought there's got to be some exciting stuff out there. So it starts obviously innocently and you get that foot in the door where you then have to really start working hard. Obviously, it's not some sort of magical, you know, moment where everything's fine. You've got to really get your head down and work. But I I think quite quickly that competitiveness comes in because you are quite literally pitted against other people, whether you're in auditions or on, on a TV show with someone else. And then I think where things probably took an uglier turn was when I was maybe in my early 20s where I started to get sort of press attention when you're in the papers and then they create a character out of you and pit you against other people or whatever it might be that, you know, they're sort of swinging a narrative in one particular direction. That's where I probably lost the plot mentally a bit. And I did feel like I had to strive for attention to get jobs because I think that still is very prevalent that mm. if you're, you know, ubiquitous in the press, you are probably going to get more jobs because people know you and it, it is that fickle, sadly. You know, there are people that are highly skilled doing it, but there are also a lot of people that just happen to be very well known. And I think that's where I started to feel probably my values were slightly compromised and you would end up doing TV shows that you didn't really give a toss about, but they were big TV shows or whatever it might be. And that's been a, a big unraveling to sometimes I'm still in the hangover of that. So I'll get offered might be something on the telly and my ego goes, Oh, they like you. They like you. The telly people like you again. <laughs> and I, and I think, Oh, I'm validated. I'm, I exist. And then I think, Oh, maybe I should do this show. Maybe this would be good that I'm on the TV and all my old feelings of like, I only exist if I'm seen on the telly, you know, come into play. And then I go, okay, you're not 15, you're 41, let's have mm. a think about this. Do you want to do that show? And no, I don't, <laughs> is the answer. I think there's something really powerful in this. And this is the first time I've ever thought of this. It's just, it's just appeared when you're speaking. But is this not something we all need to experience in order 
So you said you where you are with Happy Place, yeah, you feel the passion, it's a quieter, it's a you're just so fulfilled in doing this. But would that be possible without passing through an experience of the opposite in a way? And and my this thing that's coming up in me now a little bit is just that because it's been so similar for me as a young kid, you just want to get the ball in your hands and run. You're not thinking, when I see when I get out there, people will love me. But it's almost like your passion holds for me anyway my my purpose and I have to follow it and I and that will always take itself into this kind of experience where I'm going to come up against what you said those deeper habitual condition things because they need to be let go cleansed or and so therefore this next step of what I'm doing now like you said there's still some of them around but I've got to follow this passion because they will keep pushing these these limits in my face so I can try and do that kind of work and then we'll see what that passion expresses itself at next but there is no point like you said with your your winning the you know the the happy place ladder of getting to the top and going right that's it I'm done now I'm free but it's interesting that that journey is so similar to me I just want to do this and then when you get there it's like oh my god why am I making it about this and you almost want to just find your way back to where you were before but in doing that, you go beyond limits that were present before. You just didn't know them. And that's why they had to be found out. And now going back to where you are before is always going back better. Mm. It's going back bigger. So I don't, I feel like a child, but a wiser child yes. now. If I, you know, I don't know if that's similar for you. No, I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm asked quite often in interviews, what would you tell your younger self? And my answer is usually I would rather she told me some stuff yeah. because yeah. when I was 15, it was all so simple. I just wanted to do something that felt very expressive and creative and to feel fulfilled by that. And luckily I had a good few years where I was because social media didn't exist. I had no press attention. So the job remained relatively simple and pure in terms of what my goals were, which was to turn up, do my best, learn as much as I could about this new industry and enjoy creatively expressing myself. And I and I really did do that for quite a while before all of the other sort of <laughs> distractions, I guess, came into play. So I do think it is an absolute regression. I think I stumbled across that notion when I turned 40 in quite a cliche way. It felt quite like a bit of a milestone reaching 40 and looking back on my 30s, which were incredibly rocky at times, beautiful at times because I had my children and and that, that was obviously an amazing time and a lot of sort of growth and learning there. But it was really rocky career-wise and mentally very all over the gaff. So getting through my 30s felt <laughs> good. <laughs> I felt really happy to be on the other side of them. And I thought, oh, now I just get to go back to being the person I used to, which was someone, as I wrote about this in a, in a book that I wrote called Bigger Than Us, where I very specifically remember being, I don't know, eight or nine and sitting on a swing in our back garden on, a, on summer evenings all through the summer and waiting for it to just sort of get dusky mm -hmm. where the sky would go all pink. And I would sit on the swing for hours on my own just looking at the sky and I'd be buzzing. I'd be like, not even happy, I'd be euphoric. I felt so 
you know, innocently connected to everything without knowing how huge that was. I was just in it and it, I used to be so excited for that bit of the day where I could have had my dinner and then go on the swing in the garden and just swing and like feel the cool air and just I remember being out there till my mum called me in to go to bed and I'd be perfectly happy on my own. I've always been very, very happy on my own in solitude and I crave it now. And I want to get back to being like her. That's mm. where I want to go. I don't want to go up and be like a better, bigger, more successful me. I want to go back to being her. So I constantly, and that's taken a lot of work and sort of healing as well, because there were periods of my life where I felt embarrassed to be the younger version of me. Like she wasn't interesting enough or she was embarrassing or whatever. And really make friends with a lot of younger versions of myself to go back to feeling like very, very little me, just feeling that connection and natural happiness that's in there rather than it being attached to something attainable. And, you know, sadly, the world's gone bonkers in terms of that in a way that we didn't have to experience back in the 80s and 90s. So now everything's got to be visual. Everything's got to be seen. Everything's got to be shared. Everything has to, you know, have a meme attached to it. And you've got to have something, get something or do something to supposedly feel great. So it takes a lot of work to get back to basics today, a lot of work. But I do think it's possible. And it's something I definitely aim to do every day. Well, I think you mentioned before about being sensitive. I think a lot of that sensitivity is in that. The greater sensitivity does leave you open, I think, to being in touch with things like sunrises, sunsets and those things in a way that people might look and go, what on earth are you talking about? It's, there's nothing there or, you know, full moons or, you know, changes in seasons or whatever it be. But there's something about that system you've been talking about in terms of the, the whether it be the, the entertainment industry or the, the similar my field of professional sport, whatever it is, is that it almost feels like it's designed to bring about this learning in a way that, yes, it's definitely worth always trying to get it right. But even if you get it right, it's going to be wrong for a lot of people. And it always feels like when you said about speaking to that younger you, what, what would you say? Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's almost like saying, well, well you're going to face this stuff, but you've got to just keep finding you in it. Keep coming back to you. And I think a lot of the stuff I was going to ask you about a lot of your practices, because you, you said a lot of stuff that goes on in the Happy Place Festival, but I was going to ask you about your daily kind of practice, because a lot of those practices are about finding you in amongst that stuff, whether it's, you know, in amongst all the, the, the chaos, you being able to sit on that swing and just go and find you. And whether that's the meditative aspect or whether it's, like I said, following your hobbies and your passions or being around people you love. I'd be really interested to find out what, if you can, when you are triggered, is there any triggers there that, that, that are really obvious to you? But, but what do you do on a daily basis to, to find you? I go walking. I, it's, it's honestly... I do a lot of things, but I think walking is the one I really wouldn't give up. So I do yoga and I love painting and I love writing and I love reading and all of those things feed me massively and I need them. I, I really need them. I, I would feel very bleak without those those ways to express myself and to have that creative flow. I'm very lucky that my dad's an amazing artist, so you know, he taught me a lot, but I think naturally I had some of that in there. So painting is, is, 
you know, an exceptional way to express yourself. I love being mm. able to paint. It doesn't always go well, but when it does, it's the best <laughs> feeling ever. Um, but walking has really become something, as I've gotten older, that I have to do. And I try and have a walk every day if I can, whether it's in my lunch break or very, very early in the morning or sometimes in the summer I'll go when the kids are in bed if it's still light. Obviously, because I've got young kids it's always sort of time dependent. So lunch break is usually one where I will like go for a beautiful big walk and then have a quick something to eat after. Mm. I would rather forgo that and like get outside. Mm. And sometimes I'll listen to podcasts, but if I really need to work through something, I'll usually listen to music that doesn't have any lyrics. So something piano based, some beautiful classical music and just walk and Sometimes I have a good cry, like I love crying in the park, I don't care if anyone sees me, I'll just be walking along weeping, mm. I love doing that, I do it all the time. Sometimes it's tears of absolute joy, sometimes it's stuff that just needs to come out. And then other times I'll listen to like really, like music that just makes you feel buoyant and excited and I'll just be grinning walking around, just walking around grinning. I did, I did it yesterday because I'm working on a creative project at the moment that I'm so excited about that's coming out next year. And it, all the pieces are just coming into place. And I listened to some really good, like, 70s music. And I was just walking grinning. Just, like, not because the project's finished, the project's successful. Not for any reason, but just because it felt really good. So getting out into my local park and walking is where I process everything, let everything percolate, get all the stuff that needs to come out, whether it's crying or sometimes it's anger and I need to walk really quickly with like urgency but it that is a game changer for me it is an absolute game changer above anything else that I do that's really uh cool we, we've actually heard that before and, and as a result it's starting to feel more than just oh some people like walking it feels like again when you're talking about that moment when the sun's coming down that sings to me a little bit because I remember when I go back to my childhood, it's the late summer evenings that get me. When you feel privileged to be in that space where there's just enough light, it feels like there's a different energy around. And I think with regard to walking in, in, especially in nature for me or music, as you mentioned, there's a real absolute perfect balance to nature just being what it is. It's perfect order. And when classical music is there isn't someone putting those notes in the right place and time. It's almost like the person and the notes, they're just a happening. It can't be different. Whereas if you play music, which is out of time and listening to that, I could imagine it would wreck you. And when you go and walk around places which have been, you know, I guess damaged in some way and, and there's this kind of difficult things going on, it, again, it'd be the same thing. But when you find that order, which nature provides, classical music is amazing for that. I really get that. I find it also really interesting that you did say meditation is kind of big and a lot of the yoga and, and all these other practices. But this is what's really powerful for me is that the bit you've said is really, really, you wouldn't throw away is the bit that you're doing you. It, yeah, isn't yeah. Being, it isn't being given to you. It's not like, I think guided meditations and I think the different things that you can find, I think they're so, so big. But what's even bigger is when you do what's exactly unique to you. Yeah. So much of this stuff is prescribed these days because obviously there's a whole industry around wellness mm. and, and there's mm. good and bad that comes with that. The good thing is it's much more talked about and there's many more tools that are free, uh, accessible or a low price point where people can have game-changing access to 
you know, information, therapies, whatever it might be, I think that's brilliant. But when it becomes, you know, it, I guess it also depends on how picky you are as to where you're looking for this information. Because someone said to me recently, only ever ask two people in your life for advice. Because when it's more than two, then you're just screwed because you're like, wait, I've got 20 people all telling me different things. Some advice is nostalgia led. Some is because they want to be in control or whatever it might be. But if you've got two people that really give you decent advice, then you know that that's going to be solid and you can then take it on board, think it through, etc. I think it's the same with wellness. If you're looking on every website, every news feed, every Instagram account, and they're all saying, one saying, definitely drink green juice. Someone else saying, that's bloody pointless. One person saying, this is the best exercise ever. You're like, well, what the heck? What one is right? What one do I do? You've got to find what works for you. And it cannot be prescribed. I think, look at all the tools, try them all out, but find the one that feels really good. And for me, it's all the simple, simple free stuff like walking and drawing and journaling and being with nice people, but equally being on my own is a massive one. And that's another thing. So I think within the wellness world, it's talked about constantly that we have to have community and connection to other people and to be social. And yes, that is going to be helpful at times. But there are people like me who have to have solitude. It is non-negotiable. If I go a week without having time on my own, I am not a nice person. I am not going to be working in the best possible way that I could in the family home or at work. I have to be on my own in silence, walking, painting, writing. I, I just like in bed, reading, whatever. I have to be on my own. So I think, like you say, Johnny, you have to do what works for you. It can't be a prescribed thing. Yeah. And when you said about the expressive stuff, the the painting, the walking, and I'd have this with, you know, with, within my close circle, my family, my wife and what have you, is that when you do them on your own, you can express yourself fully. You go for a walk and you say, I'm angry. I'm pounding this walk. But if you walk in with someone and they get left behind, you start thinking, all oh, right, well, hold on. You can't just let that out. And when you're painting, you can't just go for it. And if you're playing, I do it through playing a bit of music. It's kind of like, well, if I'm on my own, I can shout and I can play this or I can do this. But if you're with someone in the room, you're like, well, I have to probably play this or I better do this. I better not be what's needed. So I think that's, I think that's huge. But I also think what's big about what you're saying is that as a sportsman, I guess in a way this might relate to your career is that that purpose and that passion was so strong that you just say, I'm in. And it's that devotion, which means is what takes you to where you want to go. If you kind of go, I'm in. And then the next day, I'm not really that in. You're going to get hammered by those that are in. Yeah, that's what that's how I felt in my career previously. Like, yeah, I was constantly on the precipice of quitting every day. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. And then another job comes along. Oh, well, I guess I should take it. I hate this. I feel worthless. Everyone hates me. You know, that, that was all, every day I went through that. Whereas now I'm just doing it and it's great yeah. fun. And to go back on your point about, I love that that feeling of you are inhibition free when you're on your own. And I, and I think it, it's a very powerful one for me because in my job and also the conditioning that has come with that job since I was a teenager, it's my job to make people feel at ease. It's very much my job to make someone in an interview setting to feel happy, mm. comfortable, willing to hand over information, 
Um, you know, that's always been part of the job. And also I think because I did not come from that world, entering the TV world, I think it was probably instilled just from having parents that are big on sort of politeness and manners, thank God, <laughs> that I was not to be a little asshole once I mm. started doing TV because the feeling would was, well, you won't get to do that anymore. So I, I was very polite and cautious to everybody, or I still am, everybody that I spoke to because I didn't want to be sacked or to to have rumours spreading about me that I was a terrible person. So I think that has been so ingrained in every part of me that I feel I can't be myself around humans unless they're people that, like probably my husband, my kids, my stepkids included, and my parents and my brother. I don't know if there's many other people I can be absolutely, completely inhibition-free with. And I mean, being angry if I'm angry that day or being very, very quiet. I think that's a big one for me. On some days, I feel I need to be almost silent. And if it wasn't one of those people I just mentioned, they'd probably think, what's wrong with her? Why is she being all weird and quiet? She's normally really bubbly. There's an expectation of who I'm meant to be on that day. So for me to be on my own and there's just no expectation, that is freedom to me. Absolute Mm. freedom. Picking up on 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 all of that, especially that that kind of devotion to you being you. It's it, the way I see it now in terms of my devotion to this is it's it's what consumes me so much so that it doesn't mean that I just sit inside meditating all the time. It's just that when I go and live my my personal life, it's always underneath everything. Every interaction I'm having, it's through this lens. So I'm not going out there living, coming home. Oh, right now I'll do my work. The work is everything. So everything is is now underneath relationships, work, every time you have a conversation, trying that sensitivity. And I think that's so, so powerful. I'm really interested to, to just explore a bit that family dynamic you just mentioned about people you feel comfortable with, but also um, a bit the parenting as well. Because as soon as you mentioned about polite and good manners, something came up in me. It's It's so difficult when you think, right, I I want my child to be able to, you know, have that relationship with people where she has that gentle kindness and what have you. But at the same time, if that's, if that's a script she's following, she also has to reveal that what's her true nature. And hopefully the idea being that the reason those are put forward as great values is because they are actually of the true nature. And I find that what you're talking about, there is so, so big and that there's no shortcut other than, if I want to have that in my way, it will just come down to how much I really care about the other person. And if I see them, which is, this is my life as a, as a, a big, big hole here. And certainly previously, if I see them as a threat, I can't care about them and them be a threat. Either I have to get rid of them or I have to give something up. And it's been my life. I've, I've suffered those relationships with people. It, I haven't suffered them. I've suffered the relationship. And the relationship, I could argue, yeah, oh, well, they did this and they used to do that. But ultimately, as soon as they don't become a threat, because I'm comfortable, as you said, with that independence, the worth as a whole, then every interaction is incredible. I'm reconnecting with people who were the biggest threats to me career-wise, worth-wise, image-wise. And yet now I'm looking being like, you're beautiful. <laughs> I mean, how did I not see this before? 
But again, like we're saying, you're not supposed to, but it does feel nice when you don't seem to butt heads with too many people. And those that, those that you butt heads with, you're almost kind of like, now maybe there is a point here where I say, this is best left alone. But it, yeah, there I'm a lot clearer whether it's whether where the big problem maybe lies. But how does that sit with you? Well, we can get into the parenting thing uh, as well. But yeah, I think oh yeah, there's so much. I think in your sporting world and in the sort of media circles that I've moved in, you're encouraged to see people as the enemy. You're encouraged to see people as a threat or as competition, and it's not spoken about. I don't think in many industries that there is room for everyone. There's room mm. for everyone. And I think, again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, you know, what you deem success to be. If you see it as being the number one, then you're always going to feel like you're falling short and everyone's going to feel like competition. Whereas if you see success as, you know, you're enjoying what you do, you feel creatively fulfilled, or you might not work in a creative industry, but you feel that there's a, there's a spark, you feel fulfilled in in your endeavours, then that that is success. You know, I, I can see it with... Happy place. I feel like I'm on the first rung of the ladder if there was to be one in terms of what I'd like to achieve in terms of uh, experiences that I'd like to go through and different areas of business that I'd like to learn about. I feel like we're just getting started and I'm in no rush whatsoever. Because if I look back to my radio career, when I was, say, doing the mid-morning show, you know, it's arguably... I couldn't get any better in terms of like, where would I go next? I was on one of the biggest, well, the biggest radio station on Radio One with huge amounts of listeners because it was before streaming services came along, etc. So everyone was getting their music from the radio. I had access to all the biggest bands in the world. You know, you get invited to sort of meaningless events and parties, but you know, back then it kind of meant a lot. Um and and I still felt like shit. So, you know, I can and people don't want to hear that. Because people might say, oh, you're so ungrateful or you have no idea what's really going on in the world. Oh, no, I did. But it doesn't stop you from going through personal challenges, mental challenges, circumstantial challenges, all of which I was experiencing whilst I just happened to be at the top of my game in radio. Now, because I've taken away a lot of the bits of my job that I guess, compromised my values and felt very jarring. I've got probably a little bit less stress now in my work life and the stress seems to have a bit, bit more of a reason and a purpose. But I'm not like the top of my game. People say to me quite often, you know, like the postman or someone in the supermarket, oh, what do you do these days? And I have to stop my ego from being like, oh, oh my God, that hurts so bad. And I have to just sort of go yeah, what am I doing? And sort of feel curious about it rather than dented by it. So I'm not known so much these days for being like the number one DJ or the TV presenter. People are sort of a bit unsure where to place me, but I'm the most content I've been in terms of my day-to-day creativity. So I think that very similarly has stopped me from seeing people as competition because I'm not even sure where I'm headed. I just want to keep growing and learning. To go on to your parenting point, (laughs) oh, where do we even begin? It's so hard because, as I demonstrated in my story earlier, I am a bit of a people pleaser. And part of it is probably a fear-based reaction to like not wanting to get sacked. Part of it is because I've been brought up in a family where there's, you know, respect and manners for other people in your world, which I 
massively hold as a value. And part of it is I don't want to upset people. I'm terrified of upsetting people. And there's probably a bit of me which is terrified of being disliked, which no one one likes to admit, but I think we've all got that quality. We don't want to be disliked. We will be, but we don't want to be. We can't please everyone. And having a job in the public eye is the harshest reality check in terms of that. You will not please everybody. You will absolutely piss people off. There will be groups of people that can't stand you, don't like the sound of your voice, don't like what you look like, don't like the content you're providing. That That's a given. You know, there's that phrase that could be, you know, the juiciest bowl of peaches served and someone will always say they hate peaches. You know, it's it, you can't please everyone. But so going back to that people pleasing thing, I don't know how to raise my kids in terms of them having good values, respecting other people, but that not tipping into people pleasing. I I don't know the answer to that one. No, it's 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 fascinating. One of the things that really comes up in me and it keeps coming back is the fact that what else is there to do but do my own work? And out of that will come my parenting will come my opportunities will come my because underneath the intention I think the own work just clears the way for the intention to go and almost do its do its stuff but me getting in the way of that is almost that question you just mentioned is when we start dealing with how do I bring up a child that's too much so we have this with people kicking a ball they kick a ball from 50 meters away and they look at where they're trying to kick it and if they try and do the whole thing it's too much I mean, how can I make this little thing go all the way over there and through there? It's like, no, no, I, I, I'm freezing. I can't deal with it. Be like, it's not your job. Your job is to just kick the ball. And what does that mean, parenting? It's like, well, just right now, just be there. And out of the full presence will come that sensitivity to the next thing. But of course, every time you drop into that, how am I doing question, you're like, well, you're just trying to, how are you doing what? Who's got the... Who's got the rule book? But the, the 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 underneath it all, this idea that there's this kind of oneness about us all. I think when we separate from that idea, which we we kind of almost all get lured into and have to to be individuals in this world, you try and find your way back with those things you mentioned, people pleasing. If someone likes me, I'm I'm almost feeling like I'm getting back to where I was, but you're doing it with something very unstable. Yeah, because someone can wake up in a bad mood. I I had a I had a thing about being the savior of everything when I played. And that was my almost feeling about, I have to look after everyone because we're, and it almost came from this idea that we're all one, but that's been refracted and distorted. And this is how I'm seeing it now. So the people pleasing, I I completely agree. I'm almost like, I need to be liked Mm -hmm. because I think there's a deep essence, which is telling me you and me are one. Yeah. And if you don't like me, no, no, that's not okay. Yeah. And the world constantly reflects that at us, that we're separate. You know, that's the... The bombardment of news we we hear, so it's it's a tough one. It's um it's really hard. I think most of us feel that way that we just want to be liked. And I like you am a fixer. You know, I want to I want to <laughs> fix people. Have you ever done yeah. your um enneagram? The enneagram no, test. Oh, no. I would be fascinated. I, I, dread, I dread to even imagine you. I bet you're the same number as me. I'm number two, which is the helper, which was not a surprise, basically. But you, it's if anyone listening hasn't done the Enneagram test, you can do it online. It's a very old, esoteric uh, sort of format. Essentially, it's a questionnaire that's been modernised over the years, but it's from thousands of years ago, and 
you do this sort of, it's a bit of a sort of personality test essentially, but there's these nine archetypes and you, you get your number and your archetype and then you, and then there's very detailed descriptions of what it means. And it's like someone's been following you. You're like, (laughs) oh, I didn't even know that about myself, but it's correct. It's terrifying. But I am the helper. And part, and so the other interesting thing about the Enneagram is your assigned number and moniker is your gift and your hindrance. Of course. So my gift is to help people where I can, but it's also my absolute hindrance in life. And it stops me from doing so much and from being authentic and from creating boundaries. That's the biggest one. Saying no is almost impossible. Um, So that's been very revealing, that whole process. And I think, you know, going back to the sort of parenting model of things... I am trying to teach my kids that lesson of oneness in in many ways, certainly with the natural world. You know, luckily my son, especially who's 10, has such an affinity with the sea and sea creatures. And he's happy when he's stood by the sea, he'll just watch the waves and like run at them and run away from them again for, you know, an hour without getting bored. And I really want them to have that feeling that we are all of this. It's all the same thing. And it's yeah. a, it's quite a big message to deliver to a 10 and a seven-year-old, but it's certainly something I'm trying to do, like you said, with my actions rather than, am I getting this right? Is this okay? Mm. Which, you know, all parents ask themselves like questions I probably do every night before I go to bed. Like, oh, was that, was that all right? Should I have done that better? And I end up sort of saying a little prayer in my head before bed every night. Like, tomorrow, can you please, whoever you are, not assigned to any particular doctor in, but just guide me to do the best I can with my kids. That is like my mantra every night. And then the next night, I wonder if I've messed up again yeah. and then I'll have the same thing. But yeah, definitely that oneness uh, is, is, a, is yeah, a big thing for, for me, sort of talking to my kids. It sounds like maybe you could set your swing up next to your boy yeah. when he's by the sea and you two could just... That would be that amazing. Would be it. That would be it. The, um, he's so happy does... by the sea. It's amazing. It, but but I'm the same again. It's something about it, and I think it's almost that order again. There's a perfect. It's perfection. That it doesn't necessarily have to look a certain way, but the, the just the movement, the noise, just being around that is is so so powerful. And, and the what you mentioned about that blessing and the curse, I'd have said that all through my life about the obsession and the intensity and the perfectionism being a blessing and a curse. But it's almost like feels like what we're talking about here is that the curse part is just the limited part. This, you know, like you said, finding your way, your way in the world where you've got to make money, you've got to try and get to where you need to get to, to do this, to look after your own survival and, and those around you. But then slowly by slowly, it feels like the more you break down the, the curse part, the burden, the more that it just loads the left-hand side. And I'm going to come up with this now in that on that blessing is healing, on the curse side is stress. So the more f- time you find yourself stress you know removing that stress side you find yourself more healing growing and what have you and also it feels a little bit like the path of least resistance yeah and this is so much what I feel in some of those relationships we're talking about where you still feel like my god I'm so not being me I can feel it and I can feel it's hurting on the inside I'm behaving why can't I do it? And, it's, and I, in a way, I find it enthralling. So I'm like, there's still so much to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like you, you, you're really enjoying a film, even though it's had some tough parts and some exciting parts. And you look and you go, geez, we're not even like a quarter of the way through. You're like, yes, it may mean some more difficult parts. But the, I still think on days 
I feel myself flowing and then you're wow then you walk into an environment someone walks into the room and you feel yourself going oh here it comes you know and I think it's for me that 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 is such a great opportunity but it's amazing how held we are by some of these things you're talking about which they're not on the surface it's not where you go oh I'm being like that anyway off you go right I'm good now we're talking about stuff that's buried pretty so deep. Pretty deep. Oh, I feel it on a visceral level. If I'm, <laughs> I really do. Like I, and because I've luckily been able to really dive into a lot of these subject matters, have very interesting conversations with whether it's experts or people that have lived these experiences. I'm so aware of what's happening in my physical body emotionally all the time, probably too much. It can be quite distracting. But I guess the the differences are if I'm doing Happy Place, like a podcast episode or chatting to you now, my physical body feels very relaxed. And I, I, I get into a place where I can speak relatively freely. I think there's always mm. caps on it because you don't want to say anything that's going to upset anyone or trigger someone, etc. But you can speak freely. You feel like you can, I can be absolutely me. If you put me on a live TV set right now to host a TV show... <laughs> My body would be like a plank of wood. My chest would be sort of pulsating with friction and tension. My head, I get this weird feeling where I feel like my brain's sort of leaving my head. It's almost like I'm leaving my whole body. (laughs) And it's so physical. I mean, I've had it when I've been on live TV and I've thought, I think I'm going to have to walk off set in a minute because I actually can't be in this environment. I don't know how to just be like the me talking to you now in that environment. It's too scary. It feels so toxic and so scary to me. I'll do it if I have to. So say I'm promoting the festival. I want people to come to the festival. Yes, I'll go on the one show or whatever the hell it is. And they're all lovely people. It's not like that's a toxic environment. For me and the... I guess the feelings I've been left with from having troubling times in those settings means that my body goes onto high alert and I am like looking for danger, like, oh my God, mm. when's that awful thing going to happen? And I can almost bring that feeling on now talking to you about it. It's it's all in my chest and sort of coming up through my neck and my brain and it's, oh, it's the worst, worst feeling. So I have to get braver at saying no to more of that stuff and yes to the stuff where I feel relaxed. So I think this is a real cultural problem like in society we we're not often good at picking the route that feels either natural or and I'm not talking about an easy route I'm talking about one where we feel we can truly be ourselves and sometimes you know there is no choice and we have to go down the more challenging path and and we have to push ourselves and go through discomfort but I think sometimes that's seen as like oh it's all right for you or it's a cop-out whatever whereas I think there are many more times than we believe that we can be less self-flagellating, that we can be kinder to ourselves, we can be gentler with ourselves, we can give ourselves a break. I think we push ourselves to utter discomfort way more than we need to. Yeah, I I think also listening to that, I think you mentioned about the Happy Place Festival and your desire for people to come and enjoy it and to help, like you said, as part of your archetype. And that intention might drive you into some of that discomfort because it's needed yeah in or in order for you to realize those things but heading in there for the sake of heading in there yeah <laughs> I'm not quite I'm not quite sure but I think I completely agree I was in the rugby thing and looking at the way I was constructed or I'd constructed myself or conditioned myself or how old that had been happening the, the thought about going into competitive 
elite sport, you'd be like, it's the worst place you could go. You are desperately, you know, insecure. You need to be adored and revered in an uncontrollable environment. You need everything to be perfect. You've struggled with the idea about anything going wrong and it's all filled with doom. Why would you go there? But then there's another part saying, I haven't got a choice. <laughs> I can't because you take it away and I'm just going to be knocking on the door again. Well, exactly. But isn't it quite interesting that we collectively assume that people that are, and let's use, let's use the word fame. Sometimes I skirt around the edges, but let's use the word fame. People that are very famous, we sort of believe, well, first of all, there's the myth around fame, but we believe, oh, they're, they're so confident. That's why they've got to that place. They're so self-assured and confident and happy in their own skin. It is the absolute opposite. I'm pretty sure, and this is a very sort of sweeping generalization that most very famous people are so because they are so insecure and they need constant outside validation to feel they exist. And I'm not saying that about every single famous person, but I'm sure if anyone at that mega level of fame was happy to admit it, they'd probably go, oh yeah, I, I deeply need validation. And I, I did. I absolutely did. I do less so now. I can see how being in the public eye can massively help the projects that I'm launching. And I'm absolutely grateful of that. Again, I don't want to sort of lie about that and be like, oh, I don't care about being famous, blah, blah. So I, I need to be in the public eye for my job to continue because that's how it's set up. But I'm not doing the job to be famous. That's the difference. Whereas I think before there was sort of muddling periods of my life where I kind of thought that meant something and I had to be as famous as possible to get the work and to be validated and for other people to tell me I was good. I don't need anyone to tell me I'm good. I know what I'm good at and I really know what I'm shit at. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> I know better than anyone. So all the critics or trolls, you don't need to tell me. I know all of it. So this is a really, it's a really cool, powerful comment because... What you deeply know, this is what I find revealed in me often, is that what I, what I really know, I don't need to defend. No. So, and I know I've got, as you said, things I'm crap at. And and when people say you're crap at that, when I'm I'm at peace and I know, I'm just like, all oh, right, whatever. And if someone says, oh, you know, you're you're crap at that, but I know I'm good, I'm like, well, whatever. But if I believe I'm good, but I'm not sure, and they tell me I'm crap, I'll fight. Yeah. And finding that difference between coming back to yourself to realize for a start, what is even, what even is good? You know, like when you said you paint, if you paint expressively, fully present, isn't that the most beautiful painting you can possibly do? Yes. But if you do something that everyone likes, why is that good? This is it. So, oh my God, I, I talked about this on, on, I can't think where I've, I've mentioned this before. So if any listener is like, bore off you said this before I apologize but it's relevant there is right. a very famous interview with Paxman and David Bowie and this is just on the cusp of when the internet was becoming more prevalent in households rather than just being like high-tech business people using computers this was when we were gonna everyone was starting to get the internet in their homes etc and David Bowie being the incredibly in tune person he was, was saying to Paxman, you know, this is scary territory. And Paxman was sort of saying, well, why? It's just another tool for us to communicate with each other. And he said, 
This is where people are going to start. I mean, I'm truncating it and messing up what he says so articulately, but something along the lines of this is where art is only art once it's been commented on. And art should just be art because you say it is and you've created it and you've had that experience. And we are absolutely living in that now in a time where even if it's not art, it's just an experience we put on Instagram. We don't believe it has any worth unless people like it. And Instagram is the perfect way of illustrating that because that is all it is, quantifying likes, which we think means something and it does. And we think people are revered because they've got 10 million followers and hundreds of thousands of likes. It's like, you're exactly right. What does that mean? And David Bowie put it so perfectly at that interview that art just is art. I could paint something and never show anyone, not even my husband. It's just that is that's art. But we now believe everything has to be liked, commented on, seen by loads of people. It just doesn't, whether it's experiential or otherwise. It can be absolutely just for you. But I think I think we do this with with everything. We've taken life and we've put things into performance. Well, what's a performance? If you move your body in any way, if you think you're performing, why does it have to be only on the high, the big stages? And why does going to the gym have to be when you're inside a room full of machinery around other people dressed in things that are trying to, you know, look a certain way? If you're carrying the shopping in from the from the street, you're in the gym. Yeah. If you're moving your body, so move it beautifully. But we always kind of like, okay, I'll I'll do that in a minute. But so I I have this whole thing with getting off the floor when I'm playing with my little one. I get off the floor and I'm like, right, I'm going to get up as smoothly as I possibly can because this is the same for me as if I was kicking a ball through some posts in front of 80,000 people. It's like, what's the difference? Whereas that one you think, yeah, but that's that means something because people are watching and because there's two teams competing. But it's like, no, it's one moment. It's you and your expression. And, and I think that kind of simplicity, as you mentioned, means that walk in the park and I'm going to bring this down to the question here. You mentioned it a little bit, or it certainly came to me anyway, was what is the idea of a life well lived for you now? And how does that compare to where it was for you when you were young? What was the idea? And, and almost the question I'm asking there is what's worth it? What's what's actually worth being alive for? It's definitely, it's definitely around being gentle and kind to myself because I wasn't for so many years and specifically it's a life well lived for me at the moment is one without panic attacks because I had so many and I still could if I put myself in a situation where I had to go and do a live tv show or a live radio show whatever it might be I would absolutely have a panic attack and I'm not creating a self-fulfilling prophecy I just know that I would and Mm. I've done tons of therapy on it and I've still got loads of work to do but actually I've come to the conclusion that I just need to go down another path where I don't need to put myself through that and I've really wrestled with that because part of me's felt like I'm not challenging myself enough I'm not pushing myself out my comfort zone but actually I've realized I kind of don't need to I don't want to do that anymore and I might be less famous or less (laughs) directly known for doing one thing or Mm. less liked on Instagram or, you know, it's all a game. If you want to be liked on Instagram, you know, for a woman, it's probably wear a bikini on Instagram every day and then loads of people will like it. You know, it's that, it's a game. It's a fun game. Use it as a fun game, whatever. But I've got to do things smaller in a more gentle way 
and I've got to be kinder to myself. And that means being absolutely me without worrying that other people aren't going to like it or me or they're going to question who I am. That's been a big part of my, I guess, sort of recovery from tougher times is you know, everyone's always got an opinion and people always go, oh, you're this, you're that, or you haven't done this, or you don't know what you're talking about, or whatever it might be. And I need to settle into a place where I don't listen to all of that noise. I'll take constructive yeah. criticism, absolutely. I want to do my job well. But all of that noise, I need to park. So at the moment, a life well lived, on top of the basics of my kids being happy and healthy and, and all that jazz is really not having panic attacks. I think they have been such a signal for me that I'm walking down the wrong path. And it'll be different for everyone. You know, that might not ring true to others who have panic attacks. But for me, it's almost been like, uh, uh, not that way, this way. And it's it's a longer path to, to sort of, I think, where I'm headed and what I'm learning. And it's without all the quick fixes of like, fame and all the stuff that I used to kind of be hooked into. I mean, that's a beautiful goal in itself, but but it's also aligned very closely with everything else you were saying, which was finding out more about me, being more of me, as opposed to more about how I can be seen by others or what yeah. I can have. Yeah. And if panic attacks, it's, it seems brilliant that those two are connected because if you move into a space where like, okay, when I have them and I have to be here, I have to do that work. But it's also pushing you to explore maybe what you might have been thinking, oh, I can't do that because it doesn't involve fame. And totally. This. And, and now you're going there. We had a guy on the a podcast who said he, he's, he suffered enormous sort of bits of, of anxiety. And he, he said, I think it was just life because when I had this anxiety attacks, he said the, the way that I felt I could find myself away from them was to write. And if it is, I'm pretty sure it was life getting me to write because yeah. that's how I served in that time. Totally. And it was, it was powerful because everyone thinks, oh, you've got to go in there and stress. But if you're going to stress, which is essentially going to harm every part of you on every level and shorten your life and everything, you've got to have a good reason for doing it. Yeah. A really good reason. Yeah. I, I and, totally agree. And if you haven't got that reason, you're kind of like, this is, this is, this is a terrible yeah. sort of route. I like to think when, um, like the universe sends little tests every now and again and I'll get like an email, oh, do you want to do this TV thing, blah, blah, and I'll go through that process of my ego being all excited. And then it's like, oh, no, this is a little test. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm okay, thanks. I don't want to do that. And then I feel like, oh, yeah, I've, I've learned there that I can say no and I can, I'm can i still alive and everything's, you know, fine and I still have a career, luckily, and I'm willing to work hard always. So they're just little tests, but I'm, I, I have panic attacks so less frequently now because I'm not making poor choices for me. They'd be brilliant choices for other people, but they're not for me. I've still got a few little triggers that I'll work on. Um, and there are certain therapies which are very good for panic attacks. I, uh, for five years, I didn't drive on the motorway because that was a massive trigger for me. And I, I couldn't even, I could just about go on A roads, but I could feel a panic attack coming on. But motorways were an absolute no. And I did EMDR therapy quite intensely. And I've been back driving on the motorway for about wow. uh, 
a year, two two years nearly maybe. Um, and that's been liberating. So, you know, there, there are ways of overcoming it. But I think, like you said, there's got to be a good reason. For me, I need to be able to drive to of get course, to places. They, there so there's a reason. But if it's for fame to be on a TV show, that is not a good enough reason to have a panic attack in my eyes. This is really interesting because working with, say, for example, people in certain endeavours, whether it be professional sport, having huge issues around, okay, you know, I, I, I'm so anxious before this and what have you. But if you say, oh, well, you know, maybe that's a sign to say, let's go and do something else. You can feel it immediately. No, 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 no. It's not that they know. But if actually when you say that and they go, actually, you know, there are loads of things I'd like to do. It's like, oh, well, that's different. So almost like when you said about fame's not a big enough reason Someone I spoke to another time said, you know, if you want to find out why you keep doing something, the best way to do it is stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for a while. And it's almost that, you know, like I know if when I was in the middle of playing, if I stopped playing because I said, look, I'm, this anxiety, it's not for me, I would go mad. I'd have a ball in my hands. I'd be, I'd be screaming at the TV. I'd be out practicing. But then there came a time when it was at the end of my career and I said, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And I wasn't. Yeah, your gut knows. Gut your knows, gut knows. Yeah. Like you could be told, you know, different conclusions to worries or problems by multiple people in your life. But at the end of the day, you sort of know. Like there's a, it's a physical feeling again, and and you you do just sort of know. And I waste a lot of time still toing and froing pros and cons lists. But at the end of the day, and actually. Having this chat has helped me make a decision that I was sort of pondering on that, again, was luring me a little back towards that old world, but with some creativity in the mix, which was confusing okay. me. But I still know that there's there's panic on the horizon that I just don't want. Like, I used to dread, this sounds very dramatic, but I used to dread so much in my week coming up. Like, oh, I've got to do that big event. and Because I'm not naturally someone that, is good in a big crowd that likes putting myself out there when it's not on my terms. So I used to feel dread, like a real dread, like, and that sounds so ungrateful because I, you know, I've learned so much from my career and I've been so lucky to have one, quite frankly. But I'm being honest, I would, I would dread. Oh, this is coming up. When that's done, I'll feel fine. I just need to get that out of mm. the way. That was constantly my thing. Oh. 12th of March, get that out of the way and then I can breathe for a bit. Oh God, then there's the 10th of April that I've got to dread that. I mm. don't really have that anymore because Brilliant. I want to have these conversations. I want to write books. I want to hear other people's stories. It's not about me waffling on anymore. I want to learn. I want to feel like I'm experiencing life at its fullest. And that doesn't mean like being in a club every night. In its fullest is listening and learning and being quiet a lot of the time and just like imbibing the information around me. So I don't dread any of it because there's nothing really to dread. I'm I'm just learning as I go. But before there was too much risk involved. If I do that big event and I'm awful, how will my ego cope? I'll feel terrible for days. I'll drop into shame. I'll waste the whole month after that feeling dreadful about myself. That was the bit I was dreading is all the stuff that would come after an event where I wasn't perfect you know, now I don't have to be perfect. I can hopefully do a good job of the interview, but it's more about what the other person's saying. Or if it's a book I'm writing, I'll take the time to ensure I'm giving it my all or whatever. But in those moments where I was on a live TV show or doing an event and I had to be perfect, otherwise people would go, ah, you're not perfect. You did this wrong. You're flawed. You're this. 
I knew my ego would be so bashed for like weeks after that that's where the dread would, you know, sort of start living. So it's a, a life without dread feels like an absolute privilege and one that I do not take for granted. I've worked very hard for 26, seven years to get to this place, but I do not take it for granted. I feel unbelievably lucky that most of the work that I'm doing and most days I wake up excited about what I can learn that day and what I can do that day. I'd say it's been a pleasure to have. If this is you waffling on, then we will have this <laughs> it plenty really of times. Is. <laughs> we will have you. This is this has been amazing. I, I kind of I could go on forever, but I know we have we have at some point got to got to core time. But it's it's fascinating because, like you said, it's it, the, the even in the this space of speaking across maybe a podcast platform interview type thing, the whole thing for me, you know, when something feels right because it's just not according to any kind of expectation. You're just having a chat and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what things I could ask. Mate, I've got to make sure I ask this. You're like, I don't know. I'll ask what's here right now. And you feel like, oh, we've just recorded a chat about, you know, I got to find out a few things I was interested in. But to be honest, I found out way more than I had guessed. And I think, you know, that's a real and a, and a respect to you for your openness and and for how you are helping with that because a lot of that system stuff I was talking about I, f I find it brilliant that there's people who are in the public eye who are leading a life as you said in the direction of just following their passion and not following the needs of that I think it's brilliant I couldn't wish you better with the happy place and everything it involves especially the, the festival coming up I shall enjoy being part of yeah, uh, I hope that you do. My, my brief cameo it'll be brilliant it's a really good atmosphere I think you're gonna you're gonna really enjoy it it's just a lot of very nice people who are up for trying new things which feels super exciting but it's been great to talk to you today yeah I'm, I'm always happy to tell the truth even if people don't particularly like it I'm happy to bust the myths of fame and all that <laughs> nonsense that you know again people don't necessarily like it when you do because it's a structure that we understand and we sort of, well, we think we understand it and we can then put people on a pedestal and all sorts of dysfunctional stuff that we all do. I'm more than happy to, to unpick all of that stuff because it is a load of shit. <laughs> oh, well, well, listen, we haven't finished a podcast with that. <laughs> <laughs> that line so I'm cutting it right there that's it that's like that's how you finish a chat Boom. so thank you very much <laughs> Boom. mic dropped thank you very much and thank that's been amazing thank you oh very, thank very, you very that was so fun I really really enjoyed that so that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, the executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. That's all for this week's episode of I Am. Before you go, a big thank you to Vivo Life, our podcast partner, who deliver affordable, natural and UK-made supplements straight to your door. Vivo Life perfectly embodies the principles we're discussing here at I Am, and we're excited for you to experience their products firsthand. As a special offer for our listeners, they're currently offering their biggest sale ever. 
Use the code IAMPODCAST, all in capital letters, to receive 40% off your initial purchase and an additional 15% discount on subsequent orders with a subscription. Visit www.vivolife.co.uk to explore their complete range of products and discover how they can help you unleash your full potential.